Wow. Thank you again, guys. I get to hear it. I get to experience that worship twice. Such a blessing. Thank you, guys. Um, uh, all right, so we've got a few things that we need to talk about this morning uh, before we even get to Second Peter, and the first is my shirt. Um, so I had a, a birthday uh, this week, or last week, somewhere around in there, and, and um, I was uh, Sean Axworthy gave me this shirt that says, have you met you, quoted by me. So I don't know what that says. I'm wearing a shirt that has a quote by me on it. Um, I don't know what that says about me, probably exactly what the shirt's supposed to say. Um, let me... Um, let me encourage you, though, in case you don't know uh, what this means, why I say this, this, this phrase, have you met you, this question is really where I feel like my training in psychology and my training in theology is where they overlap. It's the crossroads of those two things. Have you met you? Are you able to be honest with yourself about this? Um, have you ever looked yourself in a mirror and realized the truth of who you are, the truth of what you are? Because the truth is, of course, human beings are marvelous. We are marvelous, but we are also faulty. Um, the wonder of the good gift that humans are to one another is, is a wonder. And we are frail. I am a, the world would say that I am my own definer and refiner. And to that I would say, have you met you? Is that something that makes any sense? That my faith is in me and my kind, the human race. <coughs> I have difficulty saying no to a second donut, no matter how strongly I have sworn to only have one. And that's who I'm supposed to place my faith in. That's where I'm supposed to find my uh, reliance. Our culture says, only I speak to me. I am my own master. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. But that's just another way of saying, I am enslaved to me. And when you say it that direction... It doesn't sound quite so sweet, does it? Especially if you know enough about yourself to know how poor a master you would be. If you understand yourself well enough to know how miserable a master you make, how abusive and out of control a master that you are, then you wouldn't want to be enslaved to you if you knew yourself well enough. We are wondrous creations, and lo, we are miserable gods. Those two things are true and that's what I'm asking when I say, <coughs> have you met you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to break open your word today and to dive in. Um, I have been greatly challenged just to understand these passages this week, much less understand what they mean and how to unpack them in a way that might be valuable to others. Lord, I pray that your spirit who has come will now work through me and through us and in us as we seek to understand what you have for us today. Um, I thank you that, that you are our master, and I don't have to be enslaved to me. Um, you are a master who I don't always agree with and who I certainly don't always understand, but who I know I can trust better than I can trust me. And in this I find great joy and comfort in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> so a couple of other bits of information, just some housekeeping. One, you may have noticed a bunch of um, RVs uh, parked in the parking lot up at the top of the parking lot. Um, this is our new staff office complex. I uh, just find, just kidding. Um, uh, actually, we've been hosting the competitors for the Texas State Disc Golf Championship. <coughs> we've been hosting them. Now, they've been, they, the, comp the competition is not happening on our disc golf course. 
they're familiar with it, and, and, and they're, of course, playing on it and practicing on it. Uh, it's another course in town that, they're, that is actually the competitive course for them. But we've had as many as 400 competitors around. Um, and then most important for us is we hosted a worship service for them Thursday night, and 40 of them came to the worship service Thursday night. And that's a really cool thing, a way for us to get to impact uh, this uh, subculture as well. Um, uh, another thing to let you know about, and this is kind of a word from our sponsor, so to speak, um, uh, we, in the last month, suddenly a lot of things have changed about Israel, about going to Israel. Um, and so we weren't sure we were going to go at all. And then just in the last month, all of a sudden one restriction after another has just fallen. And, and essentially it's, it's now very easy, almost like normal, um, as easy as normal is to go to Israel, um, to go to Israel and, uh, and so we have now, suddenly, we're going, and then within a few weeks, we're getting that word out just in the last like 10 days and letting people know. Normally, we would be beyond booked at this point, but because of the nature of all of this, we actually have space. And I want you to know about that. If you've never been, um, this is a great place <coughs> to experience in, in real time and in living color the location of many of the Old Testament stories that you know and love. Um, and many of the New Testament accounts, we go to places where Jesus walked and where he taught. Um, and there's always, there's always some geopolitical reason not to go to Israel. That's always going to be the case. That's never going to not be the case. Um, and so I encourage you not to let that be what keeps you from coming. Um, but I would, I would love to encourage you. And, and the deadline is essentially like today. Um, maybe, maybe tomorrow. But it is a um, it, it, it has all happened so quickly, and I know that for many of you, maybe it's something you've always wanted to do. Maybe you've got a place um, to get the finances to go. It's not cheap. It's between 4000 and 4500 a person, um, although that covers pretty much everything while you're there. Uh, but I also will tell you, I have found over the years that this is the kind of thing that if you want to go, if you reach out to friends and family, they will help send you. Um, they know it's going to be life-changing and encouraging for you, and so they'll help you go. So be in consideration of that. Um, you can sign up and cancel before May, and it only will cost you like 100 bucks to do so. So um, that's, that's something to be aware of. Uh, so if you've got any questions about that or you want to know more, you can stop me after or send an email or something today to me or Elizabeth. Um, and then the, the last thing and most important thing I want to comment on is this. During this service right now, we have two uh, classrooms in the preschool that do not have consistent teachers. If we go through normal rotation, that represents 12 people. But that, this needs to change and kind of essentially immediately. Um, that we need people who are members of our church who have been coming for at least six months or so who can pass a background check to step up and say, <coughs> you can start coming to the first service um, and, and then go work. Or on the weeks when you work, if you're in a rotation, it'll only be a couple of months a year, a few months a year. Just, if you just want to work, just work. It is that important. I'm going to reference here in a minute um, in, the, the, in the conversation of Second Peter. Um, if we don't feel this sense of urgency to start really solidifying a new generation in the truth, anchoring them, armoring them, that they can withstand the pressure they're going to face, then you're not feeling the same urgency than I am. Um, and not the same urgency that Peter, I think, was feeling a couple of thousand years ago. So I really want to encourage you, if you're a member of our church, this is something that God has laid on our church. He's about 25% of the people present on a Sunday morning or under the age of 18 every Sunday morning. So it's a little bit of an all-hands-on-deck thing for us to be engaged in training and, and leading this next generation. So if you're not already doing that, 
I'd love to challenge you to start coming to the 9 o'clock service and sign up this week immediately to be involved in children, working with the children in the second service. All right, so um, please get on that. Any questions? Okay, good. It's about AD 67, plus or minus, we don't know exactly. About 30-ish years ago, Jesus had ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles and others, and Peter's been living now for the last 30-plus years um, under that understanding, in that reality. The letters of the Apostle Paul are in circulation around the churches at this time. The Gospels are out or coming out, at least Mark and Matthew and Luke are. <coughs> in AD 66, depending on exactly, AD 67, AD 66, Jewish rebels had taken control of the city of Jerusalem. If, if this is AD 67, if we're right about that, then the Romans were gathering armies to take it back. They would do so by August of AD 70. When they did so, they would utterly destroy it. But that hasn't happened yet at the writing of 2 Peter. Peter is in his 50s, maybe 60s at this point. Most communities, based on what little information we have from this time period, would be that maybe 10% of a community would be that age or older. So in other words, he would have been thought of as an old man. Average life expectancy, again, based on what little data we have from this time period, average life expectancy, especially when infants were included, was probably as low as the mid-40s. Regardless, even more than today's world, we should assume that a man in his 50s or early 60s would be thought of as an old man. Peter will probably be executed by Nero's administration within about a year, maybe earlier. Still a short time in the future. I, just like I think Peter, in writing what is, I think, his deathbed, kind of his deathbed letter, I think Peter is feeling that urgency, and personally I've felt it for a long time. And the feeling only intensifies as I get older, and especially as it applies to my own children, but to the children of our church and to you guys, to my flock. The desperate desire for you to know the truth. Really know it. Really know it. To be solidified in it. To be anchored in it and armored by it before tragedy strikes. Because tragedy strikes us all. And if you're not anchored and armored in the truth, you will be immediately swept overboard. <clears throat> You'll be pushed around by whatever storm comes. Before persecution comes, or pain comes, or disappointment might detach you from the truth. My prayer is that we would know, that the, know what the truth is and hold to it, cling to it desperately when it's the only thing we know. That we never let go of it. It can't be taken away from us. Our life can be taken. Our liberty can be taken. Our resources can be taken. Everything else can be taken. But the truth, as God reveals it to us, will never change. So what do you know? Hold on to it. I say this in therapy a lot when I'm working with people. When they're lost or confused, when they're anxious um, or delusional, what I will say over and over again. But what do you know? Let's go back to something that you know. Let's go back to the truth. You may not know about this or that or the other, but there's something you know. What is it that you know? And let's start there. Let's lock there. Let's anchor there. And let's spread out from there. That's our safe place. It's fascinating to go look and see where are, <coughs> where are um, 
other churches when they go through 2 Peter, because it's not like we're the first one. And so one of the, one of the things I love doing is going and looking up the logos uh, and the subtitles when other churches teach this stuff. And so I've got a bunch of those that kind of help guide us and show us what 2 Peter is all about when you start compiling this. So uh, a lamp shining in a dark place. That's good. I like that. Uh, uh-oh, like someone piled on each other there. While we wait, I think there's one behind there, but that may not be. Okay, and then a grown-up faith. That's pretty good. I like that one. Um, oh, yeah, they're really hiding for some reason. Y'all changed the order between services. What else we got? Is that the growing in grace and knowledge one? That's the one I couldn't read last service. Oh, he's probably, yeah, we're probably fixing that. Good, thank you. I couldn't read it the first service. It was too small. A chosen people. Is that all of them? Standing. That's pretty good. I really like that. Ready, he's coming. That's fun. The um, Calvary Church subtitle, which is the one I would have stolen if we didn't already have one, is this. Building a forever faith. That's pretty good. Um, You can see ours. You can put ours back up. The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This theme of the knowledge, these all combine in this understanding. This is something you need to know and you need to hold fast to as things change, as this stuff is happening. It's the foundation for an eternal faith. You can build an eternal faith on this foundation. So I'm going to start in verse 1 again. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So, so who is this our being talked about here? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I referenced this, I mentioned this last week, but I went through it so fast, I didn't want you to miss it. One of the main themes of the New Testament is the idea, the new covenant, is the idea that God's promises, that God's love, and that even God's Messiah and God's Savior was not restricted to the Jewish people. This is a main message. It's a big part of why it's called the New Testament. The word testament just means covenant. It's a new covenant. What's new about this covenant? Well, there's a few things that's new about it, and one of them is it's for all of us. It's for everybody. That's a shocking concept. And that, I think, is what Peter is thinking back on, is his own introduction to this as he talks about that your faith is of equal standing to ours. I don't think Peter means himself. Would that make any sense, given that he's Peter? Now, for us, that's a big deal. The thought that we, our faith would be of equal standing to Peter's. That's a big deal to us, right? We're like, dang, Peter. My faith's of equal standing to Peter's. Wow. But that's not how Peter saw himself, right? Peter understood this concept. He had met him. He knew better. No, I think what he's talking about here is the fact that the, the faith of the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews was of equal standing to the faith of the Jews, which would have been shocking scandal in its day. For Peter to make that proclamation, I, I get that from here, Acts eleven seventeen, when Peter is standing before the other apostles and leaders of the church in Jerusalem, <coughs> and he wants to, and they're having this discussion as to what the role of the Gentiles is in the church. Here's, this is one in the midst of Peter's speech. He says this, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, there you go, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, if God has declared that the Gentiles are part of this new big family, of this new big promise, well, it's not like Peter has the authority to say anything other than that, right? 
Peter's like, listen, I don't get a vote. I may be uncomfortable with God bringing in the Gentiles, but he didn't ask. He told me. He told me that he was bringing them in. And we could spend a whole day going back and unpacking all of the times when Isaiah warned the people that this was going to happen. Or when Jesus tells people, listen, there's fish that are from all over the place that are going to get caught in my nets. Or when he says, listen, I have sheep from flocks you know nothing about. Jesus gave them plenty of information to see this coming. They were still blindsided by it. We're a big family. This is an integral part of the gospel as presented in the New Testament. That we are one big family under him. And the world, as I said last week, only knows how to divide. It's become almost comedy to me to read and, and look at and listen to the, the worldly efforts to solve issues of disunity. And the only way the world seems to know how to solve issues of disunity is with division. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like that's going to solve it. I don't think disunity is going to solve division problems and vice versa. What we need is something to unify us. <clears throat> the idea that we're one big family. Again, how integral is this message? Romans 1.16, which was a common t-shirt uh, phrase when I was growing up. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. There you go. Boom. The gospel. Oh, wait. First for the Jew and also for the Greek. Do you see how integral this idea of the two becoming one of the united new family is to the gospel? It's in Romans 1.16. It is right there. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus is good enough. What Jesus did is good enough for you. And it's good enough for me. And it's good enough for everybody you meet. No matter what their ethnicity is. No matter what their nationality is. No matter what their sex is. No matter what anything else about them is. This gospel is good for everybody, and everyone is part of the club, potentially. So what does it mean, equal to the Jews, equal to the covenant children? It's dangerous, this sainthood thinking, if we get caught up in it. We get caught up in it, especially when we think of Peter as like somehow special, like my faith being of equal standard to Peter's, that we would say, don't buy into that. We, we see it all the time where it's like, well, some people are just more Christian than others, right? They're not just better Christians, they're just more Christian and that's, that's a silly understanding. None of us have a claim on this. Um, it's one of the things, I don't get invited to do this as much, and I think it's because I talk about it like this, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, I, I am, anytime somebody invites me to come do the opening prayer for something, I, I'm honored. That's, that's very kind. It's very sweet. Some kind of fundraising event or a golf tournament or a, you know, the Fresh 15 or something like that, and they say, hey, would you come do the opening prayer? But my instinct is to say, why? Are there not any other Christians there? Like, I mean, like, it's got to be me. I mean, obviously, I'm closer to God than the rest of you. And so I understand that it's like, I've got his private number. You've got to call his office, but I have a cell, right? That's a, like, what, what are we thinking with that mindset? This is a dangerous mindset. Don't fall into it. None of us earn this. That's a, that's a silly concept. None are more qualified to receive the gospel. None somehow have claim on the gospel. None of us have earned it. None of us have merited it. None of us have uh, <coughs> that, that. This week, uh, John Strug did a great job unpacking this for the youth on Wednesday. An excellent job showing them. They heard the good news clearly. He made it clear. This is significant. He, on Wednesday night, he made it clear that we could not and would not go to him. He had to come to us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And by the way, if you're a Gentile, he's come to you too. If you're a Jew, 
He's still coming for you. That hasn't stopped either. Peter wants us to know this so that God's grace and peace will be multiplied in us. Sometimes do we feel the truth? Sure. But those feelings come and go. Do we like the truth? Sometimes, but it's not necessary for us to. Do we experience the truth? Man, that's great when that happens, but we're up and down creatures. Sometimes we might, and some other times we might not. When regards to the truth, what we need to do is know it. What we need to do is see it, accept it, to have it. So, I, but at the same time, I want you to hear something. Like, I really want you to commiserate with me on something. Um, I think you should feel sorry for me. When you read verses 3 and 4, I want you, I'm going to read them out loud here, and I want you to imagine you going, I'm going to need to unpack these two verses for a bunch of people. Just I want you to imagine the weight of that. When you hear these verses, okay, are you ready? I mean, this is so unfair. Okay, here we go. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Anybody want to take a shot at that? What? One, I'm, I read it, I'm like, I mean, Peter, learn, learn periods. Periods are also valuable, not just commas. Like there's other things than prepositional phrases. It's, <clears throat> I, I read through this and I, I okay, so I, I, wanna, I wanna show you something, ready? Okay, let's read it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which, okay, I just lost you. Your brain went to the white noise, didn't it? You got a minute. And you're going Bible word, Bible word, Bible word, Bible word, Bible word. That's what I, I know I busted you because that's when my brain does it too. It's like you, you get into this, you're like, um, uh, what something, Jesus, something, Bible, something. This is that tough. Your brain just overloads with like, oh, wait, this is connected to that, and then that, and then wait, wait, no, stop, go back, go back. And like you can't, you, you get lost in it so quickly. So I'm going to try to unpack it. <coughs> I'm going to give it a shot, <coughs> and I'm going to start in a way that maybe will make more sense. Um, at least it did to me, to have to unpack it into little bite sizes, um, little nibbles at a time, because this just, it won't, I can't swallow it all. So we're going to start with a gift. The gift that we're going to start with is this. The gift is, quote, everything that pertains to life and godliness. That's the gift. God has a gift for you in that, in that package. He's got a present, and in that present, in that package, is, quote, everything that pertains to life and godliness. And the Greek root here is zoe for life. It's not just bios. This isn't just life as in biochemical reactions. This isn't just brains waving and, and blood pumping. This is zoe. This is abundant life, meaningful life, purposeful life is being given, the purpose to it. Or I would say it this way, the eternal life being lived in the kingdom now and forever. That's how Christians understand that. The eternal life being lived in the kingdom now and forever. The actual good life. Now, this is a new phrase. This is a phrase that the world has recaptured again and started using is what is the good life? How do you experience the good life? And one answer is going to be do what you want. Do what feels good. Do what you enjoy. That's the good life. No limits, no limitations. That's one definition of the good life. That's the, that is the I am enslaved to me good life. 
Now, again, they're not going to say it that way. They're going to say, I'm the master of my fate, and I'm the captain of my soul. I'm in charge of me. No one else is the boss of me. That's what's going to be said, because no one wants to say it the other way, which is the truth, that I am now enslaved to myself. But, but that's one option. The other one is a matter of trusting God on some of these things, and we're going to talk about like the virtues that he creates for us, and that he calls to us to live in. The actual good life is based on a, a, a statement of trust. When there's something I want, and it is something that God forbids, I'm going to have to trust somebody and deny somebody else. Either I know, and God doesn't, he either isn't knowledgeable enough to know, or he isn't good enough to give me what's better than what I want. Those are the options. That I would say, do I trust me or do I trust him? It really comes down to that. Does he know what he's talking about, or do I know what I'm talking about? And that's going to be, that's a big state. That's the Zoe life. The Zoe life is saying, God's choices, not mine. God's way, not mine. For the Christian, this reveals something about us. It allows us to understand, do we see God's instruction as a gift or as a curse? Do we see God's leadership in our lives as a good thing or a bad thing? Is he limiting us or is he protecting us? Now, the word for granted here is a great word. Um, it is dorei, dorea, um, to present or to give. That's where I'm getting the concept of there being a gift. It's used when Pontius Pilate, quote, gave the body of Jesus to Joseph. That's the same language. It's something that's being given to us. And then it shows up twice in these two verses. That's the gift. The gift is everything that pertains to life and godliness. Okay? Now, What is the source of that gift in this passage? The source is God's power, his divine power. Now, again, I could spend a lot of time here, and I'm I'm going to shorthand this in a way that's not usually how it should be done, but I think it's okay for us uh, for understanding. The Greek word here for power is the root word from which we derive the word dynamite. It is a measurement of power. It is a measurement of capacity, of ability. Skip Heitzig um, uh, does a, what I consider maybe the best example I've heard in a long time on this kind of thing. It's this. So I want you to imagine that I, that I write and cut you a check for a million dollars. Now, that check is worth precisely the amount that a small slip of paper is worth. That's it. It's only worth the value of a slip of paper if it's me writing a check for a million dollars. Okay? Now... Someone else could write that same check and sign it, and now that slip of paper is worth a million dollars. In my case, it's worth a slip of paper. In somebody else's case, it might be worth a million dollars, because here's the idea. This is, this is significant. What matters is the power behind the promise. What is the power behind the promise given? If I make a promise, and I have no power to make it happen... That's not impressive. What matters is whether I have the power to make the promise come true, and that's the picture. The power behind the promise matters greatly. God is capable, is what Peter is saying here. The source for this gift, this gift is coming from the only person capable of giving it. You may not always, uh, he may not always express his power the way we want, uh, but we can always ask, we can always hope, and we can always trust the power behind the promise. This is God's power is the power of divinity, divine power. It is granted. That's the source. The gift, 
the source, and now the conduit. The conduit is the knowledge of Him. What transports this gift from Him to us? Knowing Him. Growing in the knowledge of Him. Knowing the truth about Him. Knowing who He is and getting to know Him personally. This is the conduit for this gift. This is how we get this gift. This is the, this is the uh, uh, drone flying it to us. It's the, it's the, the you know, brown van driving it to us. This is the, that's the idea. This is, it is his, the, the conduit getting it from Him to us is knowing Him. Knowing Him is how we receive everything that pertains to life and godliness. All right, I hope that's helping. We're getting there. Now, what is the destination? To whom is it being mailed? Us. We are, that's our big role here. you got to love this. This is always our big role in the gospel. Our, our big moment in the gospel is as recipients. That's our job. We receive. We don't create. We don't ship. We don't control. We don't give. We receive. We just sang about that, this idea. We receive it. So, we then, once we have received this gift, get to live in this gift. We get to live with this gift, this gift of everything pertaining to life and godliness. Who then, so who sent it? This is all in this passage. The one who called us to, or maybe through, his own glory and excellence. Now, commentaries get uh, really uptight about this word for excellence. Um, it's, it's a word that usually means virtue. But applying the word virtue to God is always a little bit troublesome. And God's character is not merely virtuous in that it's a mixture of good and bad, virtue and vice, and then we might judge it to decide whether he's more good than bad. Um, we may feel that. We experience that internally. Right now, I'm, I'm listening to the, an audio version of C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Um, it is one of the most painful things I have ever read or listened to, ever. When you, when you take the amount of pain that he was in when his wife died, and then you take his brilliance at writing and his ability to summarize concepts into a phrase, you put those three things together, and listening to it is just heartbreaking to me, to listen to this experience as he describes what he's going through. And one of the things we do is we place God on trial sometimes in those moments. Luckily, he's big, he's a big boy, and he can handle that. He's, he's not disturbed by that with our frailty. But that we would say, I can't believe you put me through this. In fact, to, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis in the very beginning of the book, he says, he's really not in much danger of believing there is no God. The danger is believing, oh, this is the kind of God that he is. Don't we get there? We go there sometimes where we feel that experience. We have to trust in the one who sent it. He is actually not only the perfect expression of virtue, but he is the perfect standard of what is virtue. Both are true simultaneously. There's not some list that God has to check off in order to be virtuous. He, by definition, is virtuous and then expresses it perfectly. It's tough for us, but it's what he's calling us to live in his virtue. And by the way, to live in his glory, as you'll see in a second, to live in his excellence right there. His own glory and excellence is, is what he's describing here. Regardless, it helps us to see and understand what it means to live a life of godliness is with these virtues, to live these things out. So let me create the picture once more for you. God, in his power, has created a gift for us. Through his virtue, he is sending that... Wait a minute, maybe I said that wrong. Let me go back and look real quick. 
Knowledge. Through the knowledge of Him, He sends that gift to us. He's created this gift. He then, through knowing Him, we receive this gift. That's the conduit that gets the gift to us. What is the gift? The understanding of life and godliness, to live in that. Everything that we need to partake in that. That's what's, being, that's what's happening. So that's what Peter is unpacking for us. He's the one who sent it. And by the way, the glory of God must be a gift because we don't create it. We don't manufacture it. We're not the ones who come up with it. It's proven in Romans 3.23. Many of you know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't manufacture His glory. We don't, we don't create it. We don't build it. We don't do any of that. We can receive it and, there, and then get to walk in it. Twice, maybe more times, but twice stood out to me. Twice human beings have been directly engaged with the glory of God. Once was Moses on the mountain, and he glowed afterwards. Second is Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. He has gifted us to live, with his, live in his idea of virtue and partake in the kind of glory Peter experienced on the top of a mountain. So it's a good thing that he has sent it to us because we couldn't manufacture it on our own. We can only receive it as a gift. This is the very thing. He's calling us to then live in this thing he has given us, life and godliness. We're supposed to live that out. He gave it to us. It's from him. He created it. through. It comes through his power, and it comes through the knowledge of who he is. He bestows it on us so that we even have that option. In fact, it's fascinating when we're going to get into 2 Peter, what we're going to discover is you go, man, Peter really really has this huge, hugely important moment in his life. And it's when he's going to tell us, it's when he really understood what was going on here, when he really saw who Christ was. And man, if you go, man, look at Peter's life. When did Peter get it? Like if you ask Peter, okay, what was the moment when your faith was solidified? When was the moment when you got it? Surely you would go like, oh, I mean, it's... It's got to be when the fish were multiplied, right? It's got to be when he, he goes out on the boat and Jesus says, throw it out one more time, and he does, and they bring in fish, and the boat begins to sink, that you go like, that would be Peter's big moment. No, apparently not. You might think, oh, it's got to be, it's got to be when he walked on water. That would be it. When he walks on water, that's, gonna be, that's what Peter's going to remember. No, I guess not that one. It's going to be when, when Peter declares at Caesarea Philippi, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, amazing. On that rock, I'm going to build my church. No, nope, I guess not that one either. Not that these aren't important moments for him. Is it, is it when Jesus is crucified? Is it, when, is it when Jesus is resurrected from the dead? Surely it's going to be when Peter is reinstated. Um, and Jesus, Jesus makes breakfast for them and then tells him he loves him over and over again and brings him in. That's got to be Peter's big moment. Again, I'm sure that was life-changing. It's not going to be the one that Peter jumps to in 2 Peter. It's not, it's not the ascension. It's not even the falling of the Holy Spirit. It was when Peter saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory. That must have been a bigger moment than, I don't know about you, but I kind of slide over that moment in the Bible sometimes. as like, that's a, that's a fun little story. That wasn't a fun little story for Peter, apparently. That was the moment when he knew Oh, goodness, this is something different. This isn't what I thought it was. That's a big deal. So, as we continue to unpack it, this is when we unpack, by the way, and Peter's going to, this is what we're going to get into the next couple of weeks, by the way, uh, it is going to be the series of virtues, of God's virtues and his glory. 
Listen to how it's going to sound. Ready? In 2 Peter 1, 5-8, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, how, how practical is that? They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things that it means to live in his virtue. These are the kind of virtues that, that he gives us that we can live in. Everything we need for life and godliness. This kind of stuff. But we're not there yet. We're not done with three and four yet. The good gift of everything we need for the good life forever. That's how I'm going to summarize it. Verse, verse 3, the summary is, it's about a good gift of everything we need for the good life forever. And then we pick up. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You went to white noise again, didn't you? I, I busted, totally busted you. There it was again. Okay, let's try. I, I, I'm telling you, this is tough. My brain overloads when I get to phrases like divine nature, and I want everything to stop and somebody explain that to me. By which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Again, we are the recipients in this second good gift. The word granted is there again. It's the same word by which he granted us. It may be, though, it may just be a restatement of the original good gift. It's hard to know for sure. The two gifts, I mean, think about it. <coughs> the, um, the everything for we need for life and godliness and the precious and great promises. Those are the two gifts. They certainly come in the same package, right? I mean, Amazon certainly put them together when they shipped them to us. They go, they go together, these two concepts. Isn't it the promises, the precious and great promises that represent everything we need for life and godliness? Surely they're greatly integrated. The gift is the things promised. And by the way, it's not the promises themselves in this passage, apparently. It is the things themselves that were promised. The things that God promised to us, that immediately your Hebrew mind should run to the, to the ancient Hebrew Scriptures and look at all the promises that God laid out for those whom He loved. And then your, your Christian brain also runs to all of the different New Testament things that Jesus promised to His followers. So which ones came to your mind? Do you have some favorites? What did you hear? What did you jump to? What are some promises? Okay, that we're never alone. He will never leave us nor forsake us. What's that? That, that he is the same today and yesterday and forever? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's right. That his help comes from the mountains. That's where he looks for his help. Okay, that we have a future and a hope. Absolutely. Okay, that we can be still and know that he's God. When we're still, we'll see it. We'll pick it up on it, right? Lots of those. Lots of fear not passages. We don't have to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Another one? Okay, that he's coming back. Behold, I'm coming quickly, right? We'll run into that in 2 Peter quite a bit. Again, the recipients of this second good gift, that's us, that we get to experience it. Or maybe this restatement of the first one. 
The gift is the things promised. The giver is Him. The, the conduit, His glory and His virtues. So multiplying on itself. That we might escape the corruption in the world because of sinful desire. It creates a picture for me. We are, when, when we're able to live this life He has for us, then we are made into partakers of the divine nature. Now, I'm going to pick up with that next week, this idea of being partakers of the divine nature. But I want to give you a picture of, of what I think is going on here. We escape the corruption of the world that exists because of sinful desires. Whose? Everyone's. Yours and mine. We're all part of the problem. We're not part of the solution. We're part of the problem. And so there's this giant apple, <clears throat> and each of us have injected a little bit of toxin, a little bit of rot into it. We've each contributed decay to this, this big old apple. And the world, those still stuck in that corruption, they're just eating that stuff down. This brown, nasty, moldy, rotten apple. And that's us too. Until we receive this gift, this gift of everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Through the promises that he has made to us. And if we will live in that, what we partake in is not the corruption, but the divine nature. What we partake in is the virtue and the glory of knowing Him. When we know better, then what we are partaking of is His very nature. We're not eating from that nasty apple. We do sometimes because we're just that dumb. Have you met you? That's us. We still do sometimes. What are we thinking? We're not, apparently. We can be living in that virtue and living in His glory and partaking in that divine nature and instead eating what He has for us, experiencing and partaking in what He has for us, the goodness, the eternal life that begins now and lasts forever. That's what He has for us. Living in Him, experiencing what it means to be in Him. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And as we have our time of invitation, I hope that wherever... Where, whatever's going on in your heart, wherever the Spirit has led you, that you're prepared to pray and, and engage with Him on that. You can come up here and pray. You can pray with one of us. You can head to the corner and pray. If there's any decision that you've made, if you've said, I need to, I need to get on board with this and I need to be a partaker of the divine nature, we'd love to pray with you about that. If you're saying, uh, I've been through the Welcome Home team, I've, I've had those conversations, and I'm ready to join this dysfunctional family and learn to live out church with the rest of you then come let us know that in a minute as well. However the Spirit leads you, I hope that you're listening. The power of His Word um, is there for us. I think maybe as Peter's writing this stuff, he's thinking back on Jesus' teachings. And maybe in particular, I think maybe in this passage, he's remembering the prayer that Jesus had, not just for him, and not just for the disciples, but for you and me as well. In John 17, Jesus prays for you and me. It starts like this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
the very words of God.